This morning, I'm not starting right at the very beginning of Acts. I dug around on my old computer and I found that I had the PowerPoints and what have you for the beginning of Acts that I preached in 2010. And Luke Acts is a two-volume work. I assume you know that. And so I'm not in a hurry. We've got plenty of time to discuss. We're here to learn. Eric has a mic. But I love Luke Acts. Absolutely love it. And this morning, we'll cover, if we have enough time, and I, like I said, I'm not rushing. I'm not in a hurry. I want us to have a discussion. But we're looking at the preaching of the gospel after the Holy Spirit was poured out and Peter had everybody's attention. So let's begin with prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for our opportunity to gather together, to open up the scriptures, to encourage one another, and to learn about the gospel, about means of grace, about faith and obedience, about how you have promised you'll work by your spirit. And there are so many things, and we're excited to learn them. And I pray that you give us wisdom and understanding in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, as I said, Luke Acts is a two-volume work. And Luke, the physician who accompanied Paul with, on some of his journeys in Acts, wrote this two-volume work. And Luke uses certain techniques to let us know what he means and what's important. And one of the techniques he uses through reliable witnesses, and there are certain literary devices that Luke uses to get our attention, okay? One of the things that you need to know in Luke Acts is that when Luke says the Holy Spirit came upon somebody, or so-and-so was led by the Spirit, or by the Spirit, or something, Luke is making a statement that this person is a reliable witness. Okay, and he uses reviews and previews. Some of you were around some years ago when I first started going through Luke. I don't know when that was. You don't have to guess a lot. Luke is a brilliant writer, inspired by the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit comes upon somebody and they're, right, they're called righteous or reliable or whatever. And they speak. Luke is saying, this is what you need to listen to. It's important. It's letting us know. That's the case right here with Peter. The Holy Spirit had come upon Peter. He's a reliable witness. And so what he says, we're supposed to listen to. So that's Luke's one of his many techniques. In that regard, and I'm going to call on people to read. I want you to participate. I didn't hand out verses ahead of time because I never know which verses I'm going to decide we need to read. Why don't we look at one of these reliable witnesses all the way back at Luke. Remember, we're interpreting this as a two-volume work. You can't take Acts and go off somewhere with it, ignoring Luke. This is one of the great additions to the study of the narrative unity of Luke Acts that has been brought forward in the last 40, 50 years has really enhanced our ability to understand Luke, okay? So here's a reliable witness, and I believe it's Simeon. Yes, Simeon. Mike Kaufman, you're close to the mic. This is Luke 2, 25 through 35, and it's about Simeon, and it shows you how the themes of Luke Acts are set up in the mind of the reader early in Luke, and one of the more important prophecies or, or statements that came forth was through this Simeon, and you'll see as Mike reads it how it tells us whether or not we ought to listen to Simeon. Go ahead. Luke 2.25 through 35. Okay. Luke 2.25 through 35. There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. 
This man was righteous and devout, looking forward to Israel's... Stop right there. What did it say about him? This man was righteous, righteous and devout. Righteous and devout. Why does Luke tell us that? Listen to Simeon. He's going to tell you the truth. Continue. <laughs> okay. Looking forward to Israel's consolation. And the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he saw the Lord, Lord's Messiah. Guided by the Spirit, he entered the temple complex when the parents brought in the child Jesus to perform for him what was customary under the law. Simeon took him up in his arms, praised God, and said, Now, Master, you can dismiss your slave in peace as you promised, for your eyes have seen your salvation. For my eyes have seen your salvation. You have prepared it in the presence of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and glory to your people Israel. His father and mother were amazed at what was being said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and told his mother Mary, Indeed, this child is destined to cause the fall and rise of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be opposed and a sword will pierce your own soul, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Thank you, Mike. Notice here, there's also, if you're an astute reader, in your mind you're thinking, oh, this is the child who's blessed. This is very special. God's going to come and bring the consolation of Israel. But he'll be opposed. And Mary will have sorrow in her heart, and there will be the rise and fall of many in Israel. So not only does this child come into the scene of history for bringing salvation, but there's going to be a division. Some people will violently oppose this, even within Israel, and others will, will embrace it. And so here's a preview. The way Luke teaches is one of those ways is reviews and previews. The review may go all the way back into the Old Testament, like in Isaiah. Okay, here's a preview. Simeon is somebody devout and righteous, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. So we should listen to him. What he says is reliable, and it will prove to be true as we go forward. Robin, Acts 1.8. And Judith, while she's reading that one verse, if you can look up Acts 1, 9 through 11 as well. What's that? Judith. Oh, you didn't hear me? She got it. Okay, go ahead. Just 1-8, and you turn to these verses yourself. Now, think about Acts 1-8. I'm going to tell you up front, this is the program. Sometimes in commentaries, they call it programmatic. Acts 1-8 is the key to understanding the book of Acts. Go ahead, Robin. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Okay, so the, the Holy Spirit will come upon the disciples, the apostles, and they will be witnesses, the ones who testify. This testifying will be in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the remotest part of the earth. So this is how, it's like an, an outline ahead of time for the book of Acts. Okay, you'll see this develop. The first place the Holy Spirit falls upon them is there at Jerusalem. Where else does the gospel go? To Samaria, the next place. Then to God-fearing Gentiles in Acts 10, and ultimately through Paul throughout the Roman Empire. So as Simeon was a reliable witness, right, because the Holy Spirit was upon him, the Holy Spirit comes upon the apostles, and they become reliable witnesses. I once did a DVD entitled, How to Detect a True Work of the Spirit. I found that outline the other day. I've got it. I don't know what to, it's gone now, but somewhere or another, I'd like to do that again. Throughout the Bible, New Testament, and particularly in Luke Acts, when the Holy Spirit comes upon somebody, they testify about Christ and messianic salvation. We get waylaid and sidelined and 
distracted by arguing about what signs and wonders and what tongues mean and all that kind of stuff. That's not the point. One of the things you have to learn is to identify the author's point. And signs are pointing to the presence of the work of God bringing messianic salvation. Okay, now we do Acts 1, 9 through 11. And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. They also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. So this is the ascension. How did Jesus go into heaven? Bodily, objectively, something that can be witnessed. How is he returning? Bodily, objectively, something that can be witnessed. This is not some secret return. It's objective. Now the ascension of Jesus Christ and his sometimes called session at the right hand of God is very important, absolutely important. Psalm 110 and verse 1, which will be quoted here, is the most quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament. And it's quoted over and over. It's actually quoted by Jesus himself. Okay, so God raised Jesus from the dead and he bodily ascended into heaven and he sits at the right hand of God and he makes intercession for us. Amen? And do you think that there's anybody that you'd rather have praying for you than Jesus the high priest? Well, some people think Mary's better because she's so sweet. But see, this is how church history um, deceives us. And not just Roman Catholic church history, a Protestant church history. There's a lot of deception in church history, and it started from the very beginning. So that's why we have to go back to Scripture. Now let's look at Peter's sermon. First of all, I have here a chiastic structure. You probably know what that means because we've talked about it a lot at uh, Gospel Grace Fellowship. There's a big, there's a really big one in Luke that starts with Luke 9:51, and it's the whole travel narrative all the way to Jerusalem. It's amazing to me. Not only did the Holy Spirit inspire eyewitnesses to write Scripture, but He gave them skill to do so magnificently. Now, this was a common Jewish way of writing these chiasm, and why does it even matter? This one I found in a book by Kenneth Bailey, who has some tremendous materials. But in a chiastic structure, which is what we see here for Peter's gospel sermon, some of the, the key points would be at the very beginning and end, and then in the middle. The middle is important. Jesus, whom you crucified, was verse 23. Jesus' body did not rot, so God intervened and man's idea, let's get rid of this Messiah, let's crucify and be rid of him, does not prevail. And then at the end, Jesus whom you crucified. So, and then notice how it goes in a certain direction, right hand, 25, the right hand, 34, and so on. That's a, that's a amazing structure. I found one of those myself in Galatians 2 that just happened to have my Greek printed out, and I saw it. That's how they wrote. I wouldn't think of writing something that way. If I ever did, it would be absolute total accident. But that's how they wrote, and it shows you the emphasis in, in reiteration, the resurrection of Christ, David's prophecy about Christ, and how this could not apply to David, so therefore it has to apply to Messiah because they're witnesses of this. One of the themes in Peter's sermon is going to be the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. We've seen that in Galatians. Eric and I have been 
We did two more radio shows this week. Don't be deceived. I'm not trying to deceive you. We don't actually go by radio time. It's too expensive and it's too ineffective. We go on the podcast, okay, uh, CICministry.org. But we did two this week. And one of them, it'll, I don't know when they'll end up being put on as the podcast for the week, is about the, the difference between faith and reason. And we talk about Luther actually disagreeing with Luther this time. But we have a lot of fun doing that. I want to bring out these important points. So let's get into Peter's sermon. And first of all, we got immediately an important theological idea. Acts 2.23 says, This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. Now, one of my favorite teachers during the years I was in seminary was Dr. Donald Versaput. And he taught us how to interpret narrative. He introduced his class by saying, this is a unique seminary class. You probably haven't been in one like this. We're going to read the Bible. (laughs) And he opened up the Bible, and we just started reading. We read Matthew. And then after we'd take a pericope, which would be a section that coheres, you know, the beginning and the end. So here's a section. And he'd say, what's the main point? What's the author's point? And they say, what's Luke's point? Why did he say this? I'm saying what I'm saying to you today because I have a point, and it has to do with the gospel, and it has to do with why it's important to learn Luke Acts as a two-volume work. And it's amazing, when he first did this, we'd, uh, we'd get way too complicated. We'd be looking at this and looking at that, And after we got good at it, and I really enjoyed the class, often the main point is a lot simpler than you think, but not always. My main point right now is that Luke Acts is a two-volume work and that there are certain signs that identify the author's point about who we should listen to. And so that was Simeon. What's Peter's point? Well, one of the charges... In fact, Dr. Versaput would talk about this. Imagine a big, successful synagogue over here in the first century and a little bitty house church. And the people in the big, successful synagogue are saying to the people in the little bitty house church, why should we listen to you? What a pathetic religion you have. You're claiming that we're supposed to believe a messiah who is rejected by the people whose Messiah he is, who's cursed because he was hung on a tree. We're going to believe that? What a ridiculous idea that is. There's a setting that helps us understand the author. So here we have a response to that accusation. You're not successful. What kind of a pathetic Messiah? Here's an answer to it in Peter's speech that was delivered to a Jewish audience who had gathered there on the day of Pentecost from all around the known world. Delivered over by... Now, in a scene of history, he was delivered over by the Jews to the Romans who crucified him, which we'll talk about. But here it says, by the predetermined plan of foreknowledge of God. Now, this is saying something different. This is putting a new idea into the minds of his Jewish audience. We got rid of this pretender. We got rid of this false Messiah. We got rid of this guy who was talking about the cross and stuff like that, a crucified Messiah. is an absurdity. And here Peter is saying, no, this was God's plan. Isn't that adding a new idea to how they may have thought about Messiah? You thought it was just you making your decisions on the scene of history, which you did, without denying that. But I'm telling you that God 
delivered him over because it was God's plan. You were doing God's bidding. You just didn't know it. And yet they're fully guilty, fully responsible, and so on. So here's a chance for us, along with Peter's Jewish, original Jewish audience, to learn theology. I've run into more Christians who would rather be angry than to learn anything. Okay, when I was younger, I used to spend hours and hours and hours going around and around with these angry Christians because they can't stand the idea that God's in charge of his own universe. Now, the point is, this is what it says now. You can have your predetermined idea in your mind about how it ought to be, but you don't want to be in Dr. Versaput's class. <laughs> because when you turn in your stupid idea, you'll get an F. Or he might be nice and give you a D. What's Peter's point? The man rules supreme over everything. What? You, you can't turn that in. It's not what it says. Okay, and we had that in class. Somebody would say, well, that doesn't be, that's not right. God can't be that way. And verse would put, look over his glasses and say, read it again. They'd read it. Well, what does it say? He'd say, you can use commentaries, but they might mislead you. What's the text say? And it says what it says. So God determined to send his own son, born of a woman, born under the law, and that he would be rejected and crucified and raised on the third day was God's predetermined plan. They carried it out and they were doing exactly what they wanted to do. Nobody violated their rights. Nobody took them and turned them into robots, as some people claim. They did exactly what they wanted to do because they had vested interest in power. They were the leaders. They had the power that was available in Jerusalem. They were doing exactly what they wanted to do. And you can read through Luke and see the machinations of the politicians. But God was forwarding his plan to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth. Acts 1.8. And he was using the rejection of the Jewish leadership to further that plan. Had everybody embraced Messiah right then and there, Christianity would have stayed in Jerusalem. That was the point. Predetermined foreknowledge. There's no Greek issue that's going to change this. It says what it says. Yes. Yes, please, Mike. I'd just like to say, it's shown to us here that this is God's sovereignty, God's predetermined plan, and also it was done by men in this uh, doctrine of compatibilism. It shows it to us here, but it doesn't explain to us how they can possibly work together. You That's know, a good it, point, Mike. Yes. You know, so we don't understand how that all works. It's kind of like prayer, too. You know, prayer... We pray about circumstances. God's got everything. But we know that prayer is effective. Why so, does God use prayer? Because he chose to. It's a means. And there's more that can be known about this, but most of the people who get angry don't want to learn the more that can be known. If you really want to probe this and spend a lot of time until your brain hurts, you can always read Jonathan Edwards. His work has never been surpassed on and I did. I spent a lot of time reading Edwards. But if you want to just believe what it says, you save yourself a lot of time. <laughs> okay. If you don't want your brain to fall out of your head, just accept it. But some people won't accept it. That's just it. Now, human guilt is being established here. This is Peter's point. If there wasn't any human guilt there wouldn't be the ground for repentance that Peter's talking about. You did this. This was your Messiah that God sent, and you rejected him. You turn him over, notice, to godless men. It increases the idea of human guilt. Now, this was all previewed earlier. Let me read some of this so we can kind of keep moving along here. Luke 17, 25, I'll read that. But first, now this is talking about Messiah, and 
Luke 17 has some end time prophecy. But first he must suffer. He must. There's this word must that the New American Standard uses. Day in the Greek, which is a word for divine necessity as it's used in Luke Acts. There's a divine necessity. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. This generation is a pejorative term speaking of rebellious Jewish leadership. He must suffer many things. So Jesus predicted it. Luke 24, 7, if you want to jot that down, I'll read it. Saying that the Son of Man must day, divine necessity, be delivered in the hands of sinful men. Notice in Luke, which previews this, here it says godless men, there it says sinful men. So that evil man that will crucify Messiah is a divine necessity. And he must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and the third day rise again. So here's Jesus' prediction of his own resurrection from the dead. When I preach the gospel and when Eric preaches the gospel, many times we mention that. He predicted his own resurrection. Rich, the, the mic's right there. Yeah, just to piggyback on what Mike said about sinful man. No, you don't need to amplification. It's not being amplified, but write it and talk oh. into it. Okay, so just the fact that God used sinful man to serve his own purpose for the gospel. I mean, without sinful man, the gospel could not have been fulfilled. So when you go all the way back to the fall, the fall of mankind in the beginning was his purpose to bring about the eventual gospel. Without a fallen yeah. man, there is no gospel. Yeah, as a matter of fact, Ephesians calls this the eternal purpose of God. The eternal purpose. So from all eternity, and we might think, well, can't God come up with a better idea? Well, who are we to tell God that? <laughs> all right? And you see atheists say that, well, God can't think of any better idea than killing his own son. What kind of a God are you serving? Well, we're serving a merciful God who has made a plan of salvation that extends to all mankind. And he's calling us to repent and believe the gospel. Who are we to speculate about some better plan when the creator of the universe already revealed a plan? But the emergents are very famous for, uh, you know, rebuking God for what evangelicals claim God says, which he does actually say. Mike. I just want to say that's such a great point, Rich. I've been kind of baffled about my brother. He'll probably listen to this. No, he won't. <laughs> but we have an ongoing debate, uh, and uh, he uh, ascribes to you know open theism, and he's been emergent for years. And I still remember him asking me, "Did God know that Adam and Eve were going to sin in the garden?" And I was kind of without an answer. But what Rich's comment here has really shed light on that now without fallen man there is no gospel so yes of course it was his plan I answered yes he knew of course he's sovereign but this adds a whole nother dimension to it it really yeah and amen yeah and we can go a long ways in discussing this and even philosophically there are things that have been said and answered about it but always remember this Philosophical ideas, as interesting as they are to some people, never trump the clear statement of Scripture. And if there's some questions we don't have an answer for, we've got to accept that. Why did Adam and Eve sin? Well, God allowed it. God used it. That's all we know. Back to Luke 24. Luke 24 is the Great Commission. It's kind of a preview, Luke 24, 47, and repentance theme in Luke Acts. John the Baptist preached repentance. Jesus in Luke 5, 32 said that he came to bring sinners to repentance. The Great Commission says repentance should be preached. Peter preaches repentance. Paul preaches repentance. 
I wrote an article rebuking this guy who's been on TV and everything else. He has tons of followers who says Paul never preached repentance. So you quote passage after passage. They have no clue. This guy has no clue about the narrative unity of Luke Acts, the implied audience of Luke Acts, the themes of Luke Acts. He just pulls this garbage out of midair, and then I get nasty letters from all over the country, people angry with me. How dare you correct this guy? Well, he's wrong. That's how I dare correct him. <laughs> So the Bible says Paul preached repentance and his preacher says he didn't. I'm going to believe the Bible. I don't know about you. Don't believe me if I say some absurd thing. You sit right here, grab that mic and rebuke me. Repentance for forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. Notice the narrative unity of Luke Acts. Repentance for forgiveness of sins beginning in Jerusalem to the nations. Doesn't that remind you of Acts 1.8? We need to learn how to be readers. Before we spout off somebody's theology that was concocted at some point in church history, why don't we learn how to read? Luke is telling us something and we need to get a clue about what he's telling us and why lest you get a bad grade in Dr. Versaput's class. The very first one of these things, the first assignment was about Luke 5. And I went in there and I got off to Greek and I worked and worked and worked and concocted this big scheme and it wasn't right. You know what Luke's point really was? And it's the catch of fish in Luke 5. You shall be fishers of men. That fits with this entire theme. The fishermen are going, are going to be called by God, and they're ultimately going to bring in people to salvation into the church. And that was his point. Oh, that was too simple. How could I see that? We lose the forest or the trees or whatever they say. And I so loved that class. And... After that, I started getting it right, and I ended up getting an A in the class, but I had to do a quick adjustment. I was reading things into the text. They were then sitting back and saying, what's Luke trying to tell us? And that was probably the most useful class I had all the whole time I was in seminary because it helped me learn how to be a preacher. The author's main point. And if you can't get the point, repentance for forgiveness of sins, the word forgiveness, by the way, is release. There's a programmatic verse in Luke, Luke 4.18. Jesus comes into his hometown synagogue where he ends up being rejected. But he's, he cites Isaiah, who says that he came to declare the favorable year of the Lord, the release of captives, Ephesus. Ephesus is the Greek for release, the same word translated forgiveness, repentance for release. Sin is portrayed as a slave master, and we're stuck, we're in bondage, we're facing eternal judgment, we have no way out. And Jesus came proclaiming release to the captives. Here we have the gospel, the Great Commission, talking about preaching repentance for the release of sins. And it should be proclaimed in his name in all of the nations beginning from Jerusalem. There's Acts for you. You are witnesses, another theme. So here we have the purpose of God, of what he's doing, and the guilt of human beings, particularly the Jewish leadership, who rejected their own Messiah. And these two are compatible with one another and together forward goes God's purpose of redemption. Some very prominent people have just got angry about this and debated it with me. And when you quote these verses, they just go, blah, 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 I can't hear you. They don't want to hear it. They are so committed to the idea that man makes all of his own choices and that explains everything. They don't care that that idea is not used in the Bible to answer all the questions. 
compatibilism, which would say that God's purpose goes forward, it's an eternal purpose, and human responsibility does answer the questions. In my mind, there's questions that we can conceive of that aren't answered, and we'll have to ask the Lord in eternity, but isn't it better to accept what God said rather than rule out the huge chunk of the Bible because we don't like it? I don't really care what people like. That was fooled me for a long time. That's a logical fallacy. I'll be preaching or teaching or writing or saying something, and somebody says, I don't like that. And I'm going, oh, no, now what am I going to do? <laughs> Why do I care? Okay? I don't care what you like or dislike. Tell me what the scripture says. People don't like the gospel doesn't mean I should quit preaching it. Verse 24, now this is following that line of the chiasm. You notice I'm pretty relaxed even though I'm not going to get through all my verses. It's always going to be that way. I'm relaxed. We have a lot to talk about. We're not in a hurry. We're just in Dr. Bersifus' class, so to speak, and we just open the Bible and we look and we read. Okay? It was such a wonderful class. You know, I, I was at first kind of harsh um, in my response back when, when I did all of that work and it wasn't, he didn't think it was right. And then I saw the brilliance of what he was doing and it's, in its simplicity. I wrote him a letter at the end of the class. I said, I apologize for being harsh in your class. I thank you for what you taught me. It's going to do me well in the ministry. I appreciate your compassion for the scripture and simplicity in pointing us back to what the author is trying to say. Thank you, Dr. Verse. But about a year later, we found out he had pancreatic cancer and he died of that at age 53. And about that time as the seminary was heading off into emergent, that's when I met, you know, not too long after his death, I met Eric over there rebuking them because they, they came to, into this little engine that couldn't. Nobody could know, nobody could know, nobody could know. It's just emergent nonsense. We lost a wonderful man, and if I'm able to preach better than I would have otherwise, I think that's honoring to the memory of that great teacher. God raised him up. What is one doctrine, Christian doctrine, that's included in every sermon in the book of Acts? If you don't know for sure, try a good guess. It's related to this verse. What do you think? Resurrection. I learned that in Bible college, 1973, from Reverend Phillips. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is found in every message preached anywhere in the book of Acts. Is there an implication then, and as I showed you earlier in Luke 24, it was predicted by Jesus himself that he'd be raised. Is it found in the Old Testament? Oh, yes, that's the argument we're going to have here. But remember Isaiah 53? He's going to die. The suffering servant dies, but then it says he'll prolong his days. So we do find it in the Old Testament. So the resurrection should be part of our gospel preaching. It was impossible for him to be held in his power. Acts 2, 25 through 28. For David says of him, I saw the Lord always in my presence. By the way, this is going to be Psalm 16, 18 through 11. If you're one who follows in the Greek Bible, it's Psalm 15, 8 through, not 18, 8. 8 through 11, Septuagint, Psalm 15, 8 through 11. It's numbered differently. David says of him, I saw the Lord always in my presence, for he is at my right hand, so that I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue exalted. Moreover, my flesh will also live in hope, because, notice this here, you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You will make known to me the path of life in your presence is fullness of joy. 
and in your right hand there are pleasures forever. So here is a citation by Peter of David in the Psalms that he uses to prove the resurrection of Christ. Now, uh, this also is a preview because Paul uses the same argument as found in Acts um, 13, 34 through 37. This is Paul preaching in Asia Minor which is where the setting of Galatians is. So we've been talking about this in Galatians, Acts 13, 34 through 37. As for the fact that he raised him up from the dead, no longer to return to decay, he has spoken this way, quote, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he also says in another Psalm, you will not allow your holy one to undergo decay. Acts 13, 36, for David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid among his fathers and underwent decay. But he whom God raised did not undergo decay. Eric and I have talked about this. Remember, according to Jewish custom and understanding, decay sat in on the fourth day. Therefore, they didn't want to open the tomb for Lazarus because he's going to stink. But being raised on the third day, which is what it says in, in 1 Corinthians 15, according to Scripture, would probably be a rep, one of the things, and Eric did have a sermon on this lately, would be Psalm 16. There are other reasons to believe that. The third day is important. Okay, so that was preached at Pentecost, which is a pilgrim feast where all of these Jews are gathered, the Holy Spirit had been poured out with signs that would indicate this something supernatural was happening, but the signs are incomplete without the message that they signify to be true. So the signs signified that this message of messianic salvation is true. And so Peter is preaching from Psalm 16 to prove the resurrection of Christ on the third day which they were witnesses to, and that that was predicted in Scripture. Now, David himself will not be the Holy One who's raised, Acts 2, 29 and 30. Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. So they still had David's tomb. There, there's a dead body in there, which makes David's tomb different than Jesus's, which was empty. There were people that heard this sermon on the day of Pentecost who had opportunity, reason, motive, and so on to refute the false Christian claim if it was indeed false. All right, let's just go over to this tomb and show you the dead, stinking body of Jesus. Well, they didn't do that because there wasn't one. One thing they all acknowledged, including Jesus' critics and Peter's critics, was that there was an empty tomb. Nobody said there was a body in the tomb of Jesus. It's amazing how somebody who's been taught the truth through catechism or what have you can be bowled over. A couple that became friends with us right away in our little town of Sheldon, Iowa, had graduated from Iowa State University at Ames, and the wife had grown up Lutheran and had been through the catechism and so on and been taught the resurrection. She ended up at Iowa State in a course of comparative religions, and the professor comes in in his professorial mode and makes this statement. If you were there at the time of Jesus and walked by the tomb of Jesus on the fourth day, all you would notice there was a dead, stinking body. Oh, the professor says so. And she, in that moment, threw her faith out the window. And all it took was one professor to say it was a dead, stinking body, and what she was taught by the church went right out the window. 
and she believed the professor, and that they, she'd been hoodwinked by the religious authorities. That's what they say. That's what they'll tell you. Well, we had a coffee house in uh, Sheldon the year Diane and I w were married, 1972, and her and her husband were two of the people that came to the Lord through the gospel who were baptized. You know, the gospel is more powerful than high-level unbelief. I'm not blaming the ones that told her that the resurrection was true, according to Lutheran dogma. But it's better, in my opinion, than to say you believe these creeds because we're Lutheran and that's what we believe. Isn't it better to pre actually preach the gospel with conviction and say Jesus Christ was raised from the dead and my salvation depends on it? Not saying that they were wrong to tell them the truth, but if you just do it on authority, we're this, therefore we got to believe that. Well, no, I don't have to believe anything because I grew up in a certain home. But if you preach the truth of the gospel, the Holy Spirit drives it home. And people are convicted. I have that in my PowerPoint, which we're not going to get to this week. But don't give up. <laughs> I want to have a thorough discussion so this really sinks in. I'm not in a hurry. David was a prophet. David spoke forward to the coming of Messiah. One of his descendants would sit on the throne. David knew that. You find that in 2 Samuel 7. That God had also spoken to him about the distant future. The Bible even says that. It isn't just concocted. And he looked ahead, Acts 2, 31 and 32, and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay, this Jesus God raised up to which we are all witnesses. Now we add another layer to this. You have the scripture. You have Jesus' own prediction of his resurrection from the dead. You have the fact that David's tomb is still there and David is dead. You have the fact that Jesus' tomb is empty and that Jesus predicted that there would be one whose body would, under, would die, but yet not undergo decay. Now we have another layer to which we are all witnesses. There are eyewitnesses to this. Amen? So the apostles are eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Jesus. who saw the resurrected Lord. And that becomes one of the necessary requirements for someone to be an apostle they have to have seen the resurrected Christ and so here we have yet even more dear ones God is not asking any of us to enter into blind credulity do you know what blind credulity means you just believe something with no evidence for it because it, you have some reason or you don't want to believe it so also, we talked about this on the radio, fideism. I ran into fideists at seminary. I believe because I believe, and believe it's, belief is its own justification. I don't need more than that because there's really no evidence anyhow. Well, then, if you think about that very seriously, you start thinking, well, the only reason I believe, wait, let's just go back to my friend that, who was converted later. I believe Lutheran dogma because by... By chance, I was born into a Lutheran home. Well, even Karl Barth, the Orthodox, some people would say he's got his own theological category. But I was in this seminar with these really smart people, these postmodern people, and I asked the guy who had written all these books, who was lecturing, if Karl Barth had been living in somewhere else, say India, and was born in a Buddhist home when he took his blind leap of faith, wouldn't he leap into Buddhism or Hinduism? Okay. He was in, born in Germany and attended German theological schools, and it was nominally Christian. So his blind leap was into Christianity. And the guy, the brilliant guy who was brought in to lecture us, 
said, well, yeah, we've got some issues there. No, we got a fatal issue. Your whole fideism dies a thousand deaths because it's just subjective. It's just what we choose. And when I was told that there was no resurrection by the pastor, I chose to not be religious because that, that was the linchpin of Christianity. I wasn't a Christian and I wasn't going to defend Christianity, but I wasn't going to believe it if it wasn't true. Oh boy. Let's see what this next slide says. So, okay, that's, that's a good place to start. Next week, we'll start with Psalm 110 and verse 1. Now, you may want to, if you want to do a little preview and review yourself to be ready for next week's class and our discussion, you may want to look at Psalm 110 and get an idea how often it's cited in the New Testament. I'll tell you that Jesus himself cited it when he refuted the uh, Jewish leaders. How can he be David's Lord and David's son at the same time? How can that be? So Psalm 110 is very important to Christian theology. It's cited by Peter. And as I said, I know I didn't get done with my PowerPoint. I'm not even nervous. <laughs> All of the truth is still there. And if the rapture happens before next week, we won't care. <laughs> so thank you. And uh, let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these glorious things that prophets and angels desire to look into, but they've been given to us upon whom the end of the ages have come. And we pray that you would equip us so that we, like Peter, could always give an answer from the gospel and to be able to proclaim it wherever we go. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs>